for May 31st, 2021. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 674. Old things in new masks. Hey, it's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. Never happier than when we are gathered together talking about the things we enjoy and the things we appreciate. It's been, uh, it's been one of the things we've been doing during the pandemic to, um, revisit some older works from like a, a ways back uh, with Point Break and uh, also more more recent stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm going to begin with this uh, one confession. I have to put something out there that will not endear me to to any of you. <laughs> I don't think it reflects well on me. So uh, I'm just going to just going to put it out there and say it. The only iteration of of Watchmen of the Watchmen uh, concept or franchise or IP that I've experienced is the Zack Snyder film of Watchmen. And why, why uh, would you do that to yourself? <laughs> I don't know. I kept meaning to, I kept meaning to read the comic book. I had a trade paperback or I had it on the iPad or something like that. And I just, I don't know. I found it, I found it sort of difficult, difficult to get into. I don't read a lot of comics because I am, uh, because I am an auditory person and not a visual person. And so I found, I find the medium a little, just a little difficult to get into because my deficits, my like metacognitive deficits line up with all the things you need in order to appreciate, uh, graphic novels. And I, I, that non-visual person, am Matt Rather. I am joined by the other voice you heard, Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt. And Mr. Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hello, Matthew. So, uh, my, uh, my smart, funny friends, Pete Fenzel and Mark Lee, told me that for this week, we would be doing the, uh, the Watchmen television series that is from 2019 and that you can stream uh, that aired on HBO and you can stream uh, these days on HBO Max. So this is sort of one of our uh, episodes going back into um, you know, going back into the catalog and, and picking up something that we, uh, were not able fully to appreciate on the podcast at the time. Um, we just, uh, didn't get around to it. So there's that aspect, but there's another reason as well. Mark, why now? Why, why this week did you say that we would be, uh, focusing on the uh, HBO Watchmen television series? Uh, Matt, because there's a very, uh, important centennial anniversary that is very relevant to the Watchmen HBO series. So. Um, I'm going to take us on a little history of race in America. And no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to do that very now, briefly. Now we're narrow it down a little bit. We only have a couple hours. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, for those who aren't familiar uh, with the source material, um, uh, this, uh, this episode is coming out on May 31st, 2021, which is the uh, centennial anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre, right? May 31st and June 1st, 1921, um, which is kind of what it sounds like, right? It was it happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where uh, white citizens uh, went on a massacre and killed a bunch of black citizens, burned a prosperous, self-sufficient, uh, thriving community to the ground. Um, it was this uh, uh, very traumatic, horrible uh, um, episode from American history. And it's something that a lot of people, myself included, uh, was completely ignorant of until we saw it depicted in uh, graphic uh, detail in the HBO series in 2019. Now, rewind a little bit back. Prior to Tulsa in 1921, of course, you have the sordid history of race in America, right? Slavery, um, the Civil War, uh, ostensibly emancipation, um, uh, reconstruction in the South where uh, African-American communities are you know trying to establish themselves in a new America, and then kind of the end of Reconstruction and the assertion of Jim Crow and uh, the, re- the the reassurance of white supremacy as kind of the ruling force, not just in the South, but really all of the United States of America. Um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, becoming kind of a, a a beacon of black prosperity and entrepreneurship uh, at the time, uh, due to the large kind of you know, oil wealth and expanse westward expansion in the United States and all that kind of good stuff uh, going up in 1921. A lot of racial tension in the community leading up to the Tulsa race massacre um, that was all instigated by, as, as so many of these sort of, you know, uh, incidents are with this kind of, you know, uh, it's just a baseless accusation of some untoward conduct of a black man towards a white female, right? That kind of, that, that sacred um, uh, object, which cannot be desecrated. Um, and when even just kind of the hint of that sort of thing comes up, well, all hell kind of broke loose and it did. Um, 
since then, of course, you know, we've got uh, um, uh, the civil rights movement in the United States and then just kind of like, you know, the, the continued struggle, right, to, um, you know, have some sense of racial equality in the United States um, that just continues to, to elude us, maybe is, is, a, is a probably too polite way of describing the continuing marginalization and brutalization of uh, black Americans in this country at the hands of a white supremacist um, uh, ruling class. So that brings us to the year 2021. And of course, all right, and you know, in the 2020, uh, over the course of the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter erupts, um, brings renewed attention to, um, to these issues uh, that were, you know, very much like front and center of the HBO show in 2019. So here we are in 2021, 100 years uh, past the Tulsa massacre. On one hand, a long, quite a long time ago, but on the other hand, really not so long ago. Um, so that is uh, my five-minute disquisition on race in America. <laughs> that sets us up to talk about that's a, that's uh, all an HBO it. prestige drama show. Well, that's, sure, that's, but the, yeah. and and then Mark, because I haven't, but then I haven't seen the show. The the Tulsa race massacre figures in the the Watchmen television show very prominently, okay. and it, like in, in this really kind of mind-boggling way, in that. Um, so you have, so you have like the the original, you know, 1985, uh, the 1980s graphic novel of Watchmen, which has this very outlandish story about, you know, the, the superheroes in America, you know, going back to, um, you know, the, the post-World War II era leading up to the uh, crazy events with Ozymandias and, spoiler alert, the the, the interdimensional space squid um, and the end of the Cold War brought about by said squid and all that kind of stuff. So um, the Watchmen TV show, I'm sorry, yeah, the Watchmen TV show. Um, recontextualize all, all of that, wraps it around, like, and it really centers um, this story of like, racial violence um, with the, uh, it really centers the superhero drama of the original Watchmen with the broader meta narrative of racial violence. In particular, like, one of the founding, like, original old school um, superheroes uh, of the Minutemen group, right, turns out to be a survivor of the. Um, of the Tulsa race massacre, a black man who is passing as a white superhero. And then, you know, his entire arc is essentially, you know, passes through all these sorts of jumps through all these hoops uh, and, and, and brings in back all these original characters of, of the Watchmen graphic novel, as well as others to get revenge justice. It's hard to say exactly what it is, but um, he, <laughs> by the end of, of Watchmen, like the, 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 the inheritors of that legacy, at least representatives of inheritors of that legacy, including, um, you know, elected officials of the United States government are killed um, in Tulsa at the site of the, of the race massacre. Oh, I see. So, so there's a time, there's a, like a time distortion thing happening in the, yeah, you want, I'm, I mean, can I, can, yeah, yeah. Take it, take it from there, Pete. Yeah, because it's a little bit of a short shrift to say that the story is outlandish. It's certainly fantastical, but it's it's a very presentationalist would be a very kind way of putting it. It's an art piece, right? Like the the original Watchmen story, which is corresponded, you know, relayed through this serialized comic book, which is part of why the movie is kind of so confounding because the movie doesn't really managed to capture structurally what makes the story work as a comic book, which is pretty unique, right? Which is, it is, it is centered around all of these interweaving nonlinear narratives that are all being communicated simultaneously through various sorts of diegetic and non-diegetic means, right? The, uh, the, the, lest we forget, you know, this is 86. The conflict is a real one. It is not just a, the, the show kind of hand waves away, um, the, the story takes place in 1985. Comic book comes out in 1986. But the, the story kind of like it, of the TV show kind of hand waves away the urgency or the threat of nuclear war uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union is sort of a boogeyman that people bring up in order to justify horrible things that they do, which which in the context of Watchmen is part of what it is. Um, but the Watchmen comic book kind of does two things at the same time, which is that it uh, it has a. It confounds the expectation of kind of the order and influence of events on each other in a bunch of ways that at the time felt novel. And then it also, I mean, Matt, you would probably appreciate it has these just the bottom drops out of its various sorts of pathetic drops, right? It has like the story of a sort of ascent and a story of a descent of all of humanity kind of worked into the various sorts of symbols that it's using, this sort of ability. And one on one angle, it's 
the advancement of technology and the ability of people to do fantastical things. But on the other hand, it's also like the increased capability to erase any sign that any human being ever lived, right? Anything that we ever did of any consequence becomes much easier to obliterate or eradicate. And this is like a sort of pressing, urgent emotional problem for people living in the 80s, which I remember palpably, even though I was a child, right, as like a real thing, uh, which, of course, was very nice when it went away, right? Like that constant fear and was replaced, of course, by other constant fears. Um but yeah, so so I guess the intertwining means, right, in the comic book for relaying this uh, get transposed somewhat into the TV show, which I think is part of what makes it a useful vehicle for commenting on these racial issues, particularly, right? Um, so one of the, the yeah. Pete, I, I, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I but I have hmm. to ask: is yeah. the is the television show? an adaptation of the comic book? It is a sequel. It is a sequel. Got it. Okay. It is a sequel that takes place many years later, like more in the present day. Ah. Right? So like if the comic book took place in the 80s, this is like 30 years later. So this is, it's the the Watchmen extended universe. Yes. Yes, exactly. Got it. And and I think, and Mark Mark alluded to the the climactic events. But the universe is infinite. Um, so the, it's not extended, it's, it's not extended. So yeah, it's the, it's the, (laughs) it's the Watchmen actual universe. Right, right, right. Okay. So like Mark, Mark alluded to the events that happen in the comic book that are particularly notable and probably the things that would stand out to you having seen the movie, which again, it's like, man, it's unfortunate that you just saw the movie because I just, was it baffling? Was it like, why does anyone like this? A little, a little bit. I feel that like that about a lot of the works of Zack Snyder. Honestly, like I, I know he's, I know it's, it's uh, hip to really love Zack Snyder right now because he's, uh, you know, say what you will about, <laughs> say what you will about his, his grim and punishing style. At least he's an auteur. But the, uh, you know, I, I, I just don't, I don't jibe with the man's energy. <laughs> right, know? right, right. So and, and, uh, yeah. and the Watchmen movie is a very Zack Snydery movie. It's slow, right? It's it's ponderous. Whereas, of course, as Mark alluded to, the comic book has this absurdity to it. I mean, it's got this big, the the happy, the have a nice day smiley face with a spatter of blood on it is the big symbol, right? right. Um, communicating both the kind of carefree, uh, relatively carefree prosperity of the late 20th century with, of course, the imminent uh, and always threatening end of everything. Um, but yeah, so like the different, the different kind of... Uh, measures that they take in order to unfold a a view of time, right, is there's a juxtaposition of 30s-style, quote-unquote, superheroes, like masked heroes, with uh, 80s-style superheroes, masked heroes, Mm. which is communicated through kind of interstitial material, which is like uh, almost like a biography. Uh, So for those of you who might be contemporary, you might not be familiar with like the original Sandman or the shadow, right. Or like the sort of old radio dramas, you know, where it's sort of par- part where, where Batman kind of came out of, but kind of transformed, right. Where it's like a lot of people just kind of in jackets with masks over their faces. Right. And it's, and they're not quite superheroes in the, in the contemporary sense. Um, but the and they sh- tend to be yeah, fighting the- crime on kind of a small scale. Sure, right? but uh, but also there was this kind of noirish element to those. I was a big yeah. sh- I was a big Shadow fan. Um, I had cassettes of the old Shadow radio shows, and I used to listen to them when uh, when I fell asleep. Which uh, which you know seems like weird stuff for a kid to fall asleep to. Except uh, you know, with the threat of nuclear war, it was oddly comforting relative to that, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but uh, the the Shadow tagline was, "Who knows what evil." lurks in the hearts of men the shadow knows and that was the you know that was the whole thing this sort of like um this this very kind of 20th century i i guess sort of post-world war one but really you can trace it back to to darwin or freud or nietzsche like the the you know the idea that all of civilization is the the thinnest veneer over over nature red and tooth and and claw that's the that's the the sort of narrative um, lineage that you're alluding to, I gather. Right. Yeah, exactly. So there's that kind of story juxtaposed against a more contemporary story where the superheroes are bigger, brighter, more colorful, more capable, but also the degree of destruction that they're able to engage in is much greater. Right. And so there's this, there's a, both an ascent and a descent huh, of, of uh-huh. you know, humanity in there baked into it. And there's also um, real life and comic books. So there's like a comic book that is read by people in the story. There's like a newsstand 
where some where a child is reading or a teenager is reading a comic book and it's about a man who is stranded at sea uh, after a shipwreck and like lashes together a raft of the dead bodies of his crewmates and survives by like eating raw shark meat until he like emerges back to shore as sort of shadow is for herself. Right. And so there's this juxtaposition of like the real life we live in and the stories we read as this other sense of like, well, what's happening now? What's happening then? And that's rooted in more of the 19th century um, or early 20th century, like pull pack novels about, you know, um, nautical adventure. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got you've got the actual character of Dr. Manhattan, who is the only person in the whole story who actually has real superpowers, which is a product of nuclear research. Right. And this this character is also in the TV show. And this is kind of how it all starts to come together, where due to a, an accident, right, that gives him this ability to sort of control matter and energy and transmogrify things and transform things and teleport and, and basically have unlimited power. Uh, uh, he also detaches from a linear view of time and experience his life uh, all in one go, right? He's always experiencing every moment in his life simultaneously because, you know, in, in the sense, because time and causality is deterministic, right? And so to all the sort of atoms colliding with each other, while there's a degree of chaos, there's also this sort of like, uh, agnostics <laughs> and an agnostic attitude of the universe toward the unfolding of its own events, right? And this idea that this person becomes supremely powerful, but also becomes supremely emotionally detached and and thus can't really be bothered to help people anymore, uh, even at a time of great urgency. And this is Dr. Manhattan, the sort of the, the man made into a god, right? Um, and, and, the, and the story is sort of about a, uh, a sort of Bruce Wayne-esque playboy uh, I mean, I guess it's about two things, right? It's about a murder mystery, and both of those things carry over into the TV show, right? Which is that it is about a murder mystery about a kind of heavily, heavily traumatized, uh, not capable of trusting anybody, um, basically violent libertarian, right? Um, and the fact that he's libertarian is sort of ancillary to his main kind of way of going about things. Um, like he wears a mask made from the dress of a woman who was murdered in front of a whole bunch of people and nobody helped. Right. And, it, and it's this idea that that so there's no society. Right. Like the idea that people in the same place at the same time share some sort of common cause and, and will will and have some sort of common responsibility for each other is fundamentally absurd to this character. Um, and it said anything that needs to get done, you pretty much have to do yourself. And he's the only person who's investigating the murder of this particular, you know, superhero who kind of crosses the generations and is a peripheral character in this whole thing. And it follows his kind of story of trying to figure out what happened. Um, and the other side, it follows more or less the villain who in the TV show is played by Jeremy Irons, who is this, and this sort of golden boy, right? He's this, uh, this billionaire playboy philanthropist kind of uh, Tony Stark figure um, who is so obsessed with the end of human civilization in the Cold War that he pulls off a giant, basically false flag alien invasion, right? He goes sort of full Atlas Shrugged in the comics and he kind of gathers a community of brilliant artists and brilliant technologists on an island to conceive of such an event that would, you know, totally pull in and command the attention of all the people in the world such that they would immediately give up on their conflicts with each other. And those two things come to loggerheads, right? Because you have this conflict between the person who doesn't trust anybody and who is very heavily traumatized, but also very, very violent and revisits it on everybody else, who comes across a plot to basic and this and this plot is gonna kill a lot of people. Like it's gonna kill, it's gonna break a few eggs to make an omelet, right? Um, it's in this this idea that we're gonna make peace by committing this horrible, heinous act of just lying and killing and destruction that's going to be this both the fulfillment of the human capacity for brilliance and culture and kind of creating magic right in the real world through a creativity uh but is also a, a grave act of depravity depravity right which is going to have far-reaching consequences yeah so, so I, I called yeah. all this what uh i gently called this problematizing superheroes and pete uh, you think in a more colorful way i mean i don't know i have stronger feelings about the comic book problematizing is fair right but it's but it's basically like a shamanistic meditation on the end of the world with like hellish batman right kind of like (laughs) edging around all of it right and it's like uh and it's really intense right and and it's and it's plotted out in, in these various ways but anyway like the idea that the the crime is committed at the end of the book 
that like the guy doesn't know that the that the crime he's investigating is really the crime that happens at the end of the book. And he doesn't really know that just the fact that he knows that it happened is going to be meaningless because ultimately Dr. Manhattan is going to make the cold calculated decision that, you know, now that he's been convinced to care about human beings again to like snuff out the life of this detective who can't be allowed to live. Right. And so the follow up is that guy's journal, which basically tells you, like, the U.S. government is in league with the crazy billionaires to lie to you about an alien invasion in order to make you compliant with their plan to not fight the Russians. Right. Like in the world of Watchmen, this is true. Right. That like the right wing conspiracy theorists have their hand on an actual conspiracy that is actually like shaped the whole world. Right. Um, And whereas in real life, you know. The things that are often attested to are not true, right? Um, such as moon bases and lizard people and like babies being fed to sarlax or whatever it is they're talking about. Um, uh, and and it's in much many similar sorts of organizations have similar sorts of mythos, you know, the thetans and all that, right? Like the big lie, right? Um, in Watchmen, the big lie is true, right? Um, but to bring it all back to this to the uh, to the TV show, right? We've got. They they hook into the old school superheroes and new school superheroes by hooking into the sort of old school, uh, the nadir, right? Which is what it's, I think, sometimes called by his, uh, historians, that period after, uh, 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 not after, um, uh, um, uh, I always call it restoration, right? But it's reconstruction, right? Not the, but the period that, that starts from like the middle of reconstruction, right? That where the people are trying to combat the attempts of the federal government to protect black people physically and and uh, and also, you know, in all these other ways from all these abuses and 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 terrorizing and kind of resubjugation right through to the period of time where at very least you don't have armies marching in the streets of like, you know, civilians who are, you know, launching coups against local governments to murder tons of people. Right. Like it, the, it, it calms down because they win, I guess. Right. Which is hardly hardly something to be proud of. But uh, but this period of time is very, very dark. Right. Um, and, and it's something that, you know, when we want to be taught the stories of civil rights, where we get a very toned down version of how bad it was, you know, um, such to prompt the kinds of, uh, disobedience that happened in, in the sixties, um, that we are so familiar with, right. And the repercussions therein. Um, but the idea that like the old superheroes and the new superheroes are sort of like the old, People fighting for their civil rights, the old African-Americans fighting for their civil rights and the new African-Americans fighting for their civil rights, that they're sort of in the same costume. Right. They're kind of wearing the same mask. Right. Um, But they are in different eras where the stakes are different. Um, And. and they and they and they do this. They they introduce and of course Doctor Manhattan is present, right? And a doctor in in this in this story in the TV show, Doctor Manhattan has lost all his memory and is living as a black man, which I think is is I mean it's sort of alluded to in the show as a form of appropriation, kind of as a joke by the very schmancy, um, ultimately I think horrible uh, Jeremy Irons character. Um, but what it really is 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 a sort of meditation on the wasted potential. Right. And the wasted uh, humanity of of murdered black men. Right. Like that's that's what Dr. Manhattan's role is in here. Like the possibility. Right. Not necessarily the sort of the in the old story, the kind of uh, fiat accompli of the creation of the universe. Right. Which has sort of been done and can only manage to kind of second law of thermodynamics its way towards its conclusion. Um, But rather the idea that the if you had this kind of power, couldn't you do something right and the notion that like he was never he was not permitted to do anything because on one hand he's not aware of his history right and the other hand um he's been stripped of his power yeah. uh, by his, by his internalization of the events that have happened i think there's supposed to be a detachment sorry mark you go ahead yeah that's all really good but i want to provide some additional context for matt there's like it's very very important to this yeah um alternate history i'm really you know, i'm really crucial to this podcast guys because uh, <laughs> i mean like uh i need you to explain Someone all this to stuff watch to me it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, this, this is this is great though because it's, it's forcing us to, like really can kind of like work our thoughts through this and put to get the most important um, uh, parts of the story out out on the table, right? So in this alternate timeline here, right, with uh, the alien squid uh, having stopped World War Three and ended the Cold War, um, what happens is that instead of R. R. Ronald Reagan becoming president, R. R. Robert Redford becomes president and um, you know because the world is now upside down, we have this like you know very left wing liberal. 
um, administration and kind of a world order uh, that takes on the United States, you know, rather than, you know, kind of the prevailing Reaganomics and, you know, 40 years of conservatism that has, um, you know, uh, I would argue controlled Amer- American political discourse over the last you know, few decades. Um, instead, you have Robert Redford, you have um, honest to God reparations for, if not all of slavery, then definitely for the Tulsa massacre itself, which are very cleverly um, disparagingly called Redfordations. Right. So you have this like crazy through line here, right, where Ozymandias commits this, you know, heinous crime, kills three million people, ends World War, uh, stops, prevents World War Three from happening and also institutes like this, like feel good liberalism in the United States. And, you know, this uh, sense of this era of racial justice and like it's like the show goes a little of its way to show like, you know, black culture thriving in Tulsa, right, with, uh, you know, they've rebuilt um, the Greenwood neighborhood, which was destroyed there. You know, there's this uh, successful the theater production of uh, Oklahoma, which is uh, cast entirely with, with, with black performers, um, you know, lots of black families living in upper middle class, nice upper middle class homes and all the kind of stuff. Right. You see uh, all of this here and you're also painfully aware of uh, how it all, all all came about. And so it's like, you know, there's, you know, all, this ties back into all these different stories you hear about, think about Washington, which is like, you know, um, what what ends justify these means here? And um, this, you know, on the surface seems like a positive outcome, which is, in fact, built upon, you know, very terrible acts. Like, you know, can we make peace with that? Or, or do we have this obligation to seek the actual truth? Uh, would you agree, Pete, that that's like an, a, a kind of a summation of what's going on um, from that angle? It, yeah. I, what I would add is the idea that um, one, I think I hear people talk, I fear people talk about this sort of stuff happening in American history a lot. And one of the things that, that I've always felt about it uh, for, I guess, as long as I can remember, which, which I feel like, I don't know. I don't know if this is something that other people don't feel. Maybe they feel about it differently. Is that like, it's a big place and it has factions, right? It has had factions for a long time and the factions kind of shift and change, but ultimately, like a lot of factionalism gets passed down through generations. It gets passed down through social relationships. And just because somebody calls themselves a citizen of a country doesn't mean that that is like the fundamental thing that's true about them, right? Just because, in this case, someone calls themselves the sheriff, you know, in this case, Don Johnson in the TV show plays the sheriff whose grandfather was in the Klan. Right. And it's like, okay, you know, you call yourself the sheriff. You're supposed to be standing up for the black community in Tulsa. You tell everybody that you're doing this. But on some level, this faction that you were part of not only exists as like an element of your memory, but like palpably exists as a group of people that you know personally that are doing bad things like right now. Right. And I think that that there is a bit of a a cognitive illusion that happens. I think when people talk about this sort of thing happening in American history, where it's sort of like, it's sort of things get generally attributed to this Baudrillardian, uh, Baudrillardian notion of the Amer of America, right? America did this, America did that. And it's like, dude, you had like a giant rebel army, you know, marching all over the country. They don't, and, and they were all, uh, they all went home. Right. And it's like, well, everything we would tell you about how any other country works is that if there's a big war and then one of the sides is left behind, even if you kill them all, their kids are still going to be angry. Like these sort of enmities and hatreds don't just die. Right. They don't just leave and they don't just go away if you if you alleviate the immediate problems that are associated with them. Right. And this and this isn't presented. I don't know, I I don't know like, Pete. I, th- I think they'll welcome us as liberators. <laughs> <laughs> But just the idea that, like, making Robert Redford president isn't going to cause these, like, deep-seated hatreds to cease to exist, right? Nor the particular self-identification with these hatreds as, like, a core item of identity, right? Um, and and I, and I it'll change its mask, right? I think that's a big part of what the TV show is doing. It's, like, taking old things and putting them in new masks, right? And then with the notion that if you put on a new mask, it gives you – a psychological permission to act in a cruelty that your otherwise participation in society would not permit. Right. It's like, you know, these people who their ancestors were involved in this fight. Right. Um, and, and a lot of their ancestors were part of these like murderous gangs. Right. And, uh, and now they're part of contemporary society. Um, if they're going around openly in contemporary society, they're going to not want to be associated with it. Probably. But in, but but once they are once everybody puts their masks on, then you see what really comes out, right? Um, it's kind of part of what's going on with masks in this show. But anyway, I'm sorry, I got di- I got distracted. I, I guess what I really wanted to say was that 
there's an additional framing device in the show where the main character, who's played by Regina King, uh, Academy Award winner Regina King, um, is Sister Knight, a black a black superhero slash police officer. Um, she takes a drug that includes in it the chemically encoded memories of her grandfather. And so she, like a Dr. Manhattan figure who experiences time nonlinearly, is simultaneously experiencing the time of both the Tulsa Race Massacre and also uh, being a police officer in the 1930s and early 40s in New York City in a fight with white supremacy there. Right. Um, and, and the journey of her grandfather as having sort of survived this horrible trauma and sort of finding ways to what participate in process reenact his trauma in a way that feels like justice right and might be called justice but which he himself somewhat disavows by the end of the story or at least problematizes right um just his pain right his pain that he encounters over and over again and the way that putting on a mask gives him a way to process his pain that he wouldn't otherwise have um but also prevents the uh, healing Right, that's right. like a well, very specific okay. thing that he says at the end. So this is what I wanted to ask, I guess, ask about. I guess Martin, Matt's the one asking the questions here. But the TV show makes this proposition. I think this might be one of the more relevant um, notions concerning the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. Is this idea that healing is possible, right? Like, like, and I don't mean to say that it isn't, right? And I'm not such, but I'm like, but it, there's a lot in the story that seems to countermand the notion that healing is a thing that takes place. Um, healing being the idea that you experience a trauma and if you extricate yourself from an environment where you're constantly being subjected to it and reenacting it and experiencing lots of pain and stress, right? And you're also kind of doing horrible things in the name of it, right? This idea that if you were to stop and to extricate yourself from all of that, the wound of the trauma would go away in some way, right? It would fade, it would heal. Um, and Watchmen, is not a story. The original Watchmen is not a story about healing at all. Like nobody heals, right? It's everybody just gets worse, right? Yeah. <laughs> everybody just gets damaged. People have moments of happiness. They have moments of contentment. They have moments of love. Uh, but all of the things that happened in the past are always with us. Um, and, and I guess I wanted to, I don't know if it's a question. It's more of a statement. It's like this story is taking somebody who didn't have to, on a day to day basis, live with the realities of the past quite so urgently, right? Didn't really know what had happened, but was dealing with the contemporary consequences of it, right? And was dealing with the people who are part of those factions that are still around and still fighting that fight, right? You're talking about Knights yeah. right? To be very specific. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing is, the, the smart thing that David Lindelof did in this story is he centers all of it on Sister Knight. It's all centered on Sister Knight. So all of the stuff that doesn't make sense doesn't matter because it's not about her, right? It's like, oh, so so Adrian Veidt is living on another planet with a bunch of Downton Abbey extras and he's shooting their <laughs> dead bodies and catapults into into space. Right. Like this is this is this is nice. This is all happening also. But like ultimately, this is about Sister Knight. Right. Um, and it all comes back to why it's important to her. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's like it's this idea like, um, you know, you you see, I think I don't know. My own experience of it is trivial by comparison, but it's like, you know, I grew up hearing lots of stories of lots of atrocities committed against my ancestors. Like, I'm assuming I assume that that's something that happens to everybody. Right. That like every family has their stories of the people who did them wrong. Right. Um, and and those things may or may not be relevant to the current sure. situation. I mean, what, I, yeah. Do you mean the English specifically or like the, you know, or like the neighbors? <laughs> no, no, no. The English specifically. OK. Yeah. <laughs> the English and Bismarck. Right. Okay, sure. and, uh, okay. Got yeah, it. yeah. Yeah. Like the English and, and the German empire. Uh, the, basically it's like, I guess what I'm saying is coming from an, a family of that immigrated number of generations ago, I have in my family traditions, all the stories of the reasons we left. Right. And all the things that went wrong that prompted us to leave and made us run away from home. Right. Um, to this new place. And those things, it, even though they faded for me, were like a very present thing for, you know, my grandparents, Right. Um, yeah. And, and, and yeah. I'd, I'd probably say further that the, the stories that got passed down to you that became really important kind of internal objects and like the people in those stories and in, in the in the like the Melanie in the Kleinian sense. Right. Of of like yeah. big like psychological objects inside of you that like, you know, that you have a relationship with and that have a relationship with each other. Like these these ideas or these kind of personified personified things. I, I, I would venture to say that that, you know, when grandparents tell these stories, not to single yours or anyone's out, when grandparents tell these stories to their grandchildren, it, it's not often with the greatest 
scrupulousness towards the historical record, right? Like, no, because it, it's about what they feel about it. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's about what they it's about what they feel about it. And so things like um, you th- these aren't stories in the way that you would deal deal with these kind of anecdotes in the study in the study of history, as you like tried to tried to piece together a timeline of something or or tried to understand the the things that went into you know causing causing change in in the world and that and and yet and and so they're not true right in some sense and yet they're very very true right because they live in you you know they they live yeah. in you because uh they're part of your family relationship with you know beloved grandparents or whatever your relationship with your grandparents is but like they're close enough to tell you stories at some point in your life you know like that that uh and that that bond right one of the one of the kind of the aspects of it is this you know particular sort of potentially false in fact likely false understanding of of history or like of of uh yeah my my um in, in my family, it was all the, all the, the things, the bad things done to the Polish potato farmers, you know, the poor, the poor Polish potato farmers that were my, you know, my mother's father's, uh, uh, lineage. And like, his lineage is a lot more complicated than that, but that was the narrative, right? Like that was the thing that they, that they grafted themselves onto. And you, you end up kind of creating a space for yourself as a triangulation, you know, as a, um, you name checked Baudrillard before, but in this case, it's a, uh, in this case, it's a different you know it's a it's a differing and in so differing deferring to um these these ideas you know these kind of uh, convictions about history which are not true but that become true in in that they are internal objects that that live in you i, I was thinking yeah. about i'm sorry to, to go off on this i was actually no, no, no. thinking about this specific topic ad hoc to uh, to something else. I listened to a podcast recently about the history of stand-up comedy and, uh, it was, it was narrated by a scholar of this topic and it contradicted some things that I had heard from other sources about the history of stand-up comedy. And of course, the, the scholar was more accurate. Um, but I'm not sure that, that it was more true. <laughs> Yeah. So, so Pete, yeah. let me let me ask you, this. Make, this makes me think of a question asked Pete, um, which is like the way that Matt is describing memory and in particular how these things are passed down through generations. It makes me think about the function of nostalgia, the pills that ostensibly contain true memories, but also are presented in a very dreamlike and surreal fashion, right? Mm. Um, and I, I think in the show we're meant to take them as being you know gospel truth. But it also makes me think, Pete, if there's any any uh, room for interpretation, that um, there are some problems with those memories, that they're incomplete, I think so. that or that they're like they're they're highly filtered, maybe. I I would think so. I think that in the style that they're communicated to us. So yeah. So I guess to 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 make that leap, one one thing I think that's important to say is that Cromwell isn't coming for me. Right. And like and like Bismarck isn't going to conscript my son and like nobody's taking Matt's potatoes. Right. But, but when you're talking about these. The hey, 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 like the Japanese are not coming for me as far <laughs> as I'm aware. But 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 it's like but in the situation of African-Americans in America, too, I do believe in trying to understand other people by kind of trying to find common uh, sorts of phenomena that you might subjectively experience. But yeah, like these are there's a I think that there's a similar sort of notion of like the memories that I have ancestrally uh, here, of course, framed by the fact that you're not the hegemonic culture, right, that the stories that everybody is telling are erasing you from it. Right. Um, so you are your your stories are seen through that lens, too. So you have an even bigger gap between what is the the sort of threat facing you, the trauma and pain that you're facing and the stories that you're getting down from generation to generation. I think that in the Watchmen TV show, they have this great framing device where the old memories are in black and white. Right. Um, and or I've at been least thinking, the, the, that particular set of memories. But go on. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, are, is there ever a nostalgia memory in in the new TV show that isn't in black and white? No, not nostalgia memories. But we do have yeah. flashbacks, right? In particular, right, 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 right. To, um, yeah. to, to to Sister Knight's um, childhood in Vietnam. Which right, I want to get right, to the whole right. Vietnam so, stuff in just yeah. a second. Finish your thought, Pete. So the things that Sister Knight has experienced herself are is in color, and yeah. the things that Sister Knight didn't experience, but her grandfather Hooded Justice 
the first superhero experienced or the first masked hero experienced uh, are in black and white. And this is a stylistic callback to the original Watchmen comic book where the old stuff is in black and white, new stuff is in color. But also it creates a distance between Sister Mm -hmm. Knight and those memories and also placing her in those memories in black and white is jarring. Right. The moments when you see her character suddenly in black and white, it's like a Wizard of Oz moment, but not with the same tone. It's it's like this is a a, cha- a different world. She's mm-hmm. experiencing a different world. And um, so that so the idea that it's just the same world and it's always been the same is not accurate. Right. 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 But part of that is because life is experienced subjectively and the and the pain and trauma is something that happens to people. Right. And so like this child is who experienced this this horrible thing that happened happened to this child. And that's the level on which we care about it in this particular story, the pain that it caused this person as one person out of many, but as one person. Right. And so you, yeah, she, she, it's not, there are definitely details in it that are uh, magically realistic at the very least, you know, pianos in the middle of the street playing music that the, that the person is remembering while they're experiencing something else. Um, but but the but I think that there is meant to be a really profound alienation that is challenging to your own sense of reality to actually try to go back and relive what these other people who yes. are our ans- who our ancestors went through. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so yeah. to I mean, let me also then kind of touch upon the question that you brought up um, yeah. around healing and right, is it right, possible? Right. And I think what you're saying is that this 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 show is a come down on saying like not really. Or like it's 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 I hear I'm I'll just come out and say my my, my thesis on this, which is that the, the show says like it, it might be possible if it is, it is incredibly difficult and it involves a full accounting and acknowledgement of past trauma. Yeah. Right. Those I past mean, traumas include um the Greenwood Massacre and they also include the 1985 squid attack. Right. I would I would even venture. I mean, the other thing about this story, it is it is low key an elaborate story about a white man murdering his Asian dog. Right. Which is really messed up. Right. And that's what solves everything. That's what fixes everything in this story. Right. Which is which is it's just incredibly messed up. Right. This. Yeah. I, mean, okay. I guess I should, so, I should elaborate talk, on that. Yeah. Yeah. OK. So the part of the important setup uh, for this aspect of the story is that in this universe, like Dr. Manhattan intervenes in the Vietnam War. Richard Nixon uh, asked Dr. Manhattan to, to step in because we're losing. Um, and in the process of doing so, um, America colonizes Vietnam and eventually makes it the 51st state. Like super interesting stuff here. Right. And this is also like this is where um, Sister Knight was born. Right. And also where she sees her parents murdered by Vietnamese um, separatists, freedom fighters, if you will. Right. Um, And then uh, fast forward into the present. And basically the big bad in this Watchmen 2019 TV story is um, a uh, I'm leaving out a bunch of details here, but a a Vietnamese woman. Right. Whose father uh, is uh, is Ozymandias. Right. Whose whose mother uh, basically, you know, got Ozymandias sperm and then impregnated impregnated her. Um, with with that, and the whole thing is 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 uh, her her angle there is an elaborate revenge plot, right, against the United States uh, for subjugating uh, Vietnam, right? And you're right, yes, Ozymandias, the white man, kills his daughter, and that's like the the, the quote unquote happy ending for all I mean, of this. So, so the, yeah, so the one one thing I would say to to go back to something you said before, when you were relaying the story, right, you said that um, that these acts of white supremacy are carried out by the ruling class. And I would I would just update to say that it's worse. Right. Which is that, like, the ruling class has profound indifference for any of this stuff happening. Right. The ruling class of the of the actual kind of billionaires are playing whatever side of this serves their own personal psychology. And in this story, there's this woman, Lady True, who's a uh, trillionaire pharmaceutical genius and robotics and A.I. and all sorts of craziness uh, technologist. You know, she is using the Ku Klux Klan to achieve personal omnipotence and immortality by by like piggybacking off of their attempt to uh, kidnap and murder yeah. black Dr. Manhattan. Right. And, and, yeah, and it's not just about like, you know, getting revenge on America for the Vietnam War. You know, she ostensibly says that she's going to fix all the world problems, but it's right. also for also for revenge. Yeah, but she's also like a monster. I mean, one of the, the weird that, things yes. that gets revealed is that, you know, her father, who she hates, 
there's this there's this nonlinear narrative of her father coming back from outer space and being rescued by her. But what we don't really figure out, I think, until a little bit later on, is that that whole narrative happens years before the events of this story. And for years prior to the events of the story, he is like frozen in carbonite held in her personal, you know, solarium as as a sort of reminder of like the of his of like her superiority and what happens to her enemies. Right. It's like yeah. it's this like she's job of the hut. Right. Um, she's just this this gangster uh, who with her trophies. Uh, but she's also she's also really nice and kind to people. And she's really nice to Sister Knight. Right. While at the same time, you know, very involved with the same clan members that are trying to kill her family and her. Right. And so there's this there's this sort of grand the people with the grand design just don't care. Right. They don't care enough to to get involved. Um, well, they get involved a lot, but they get involved in their own interests, right? And so, and, and so, what, what I'm saying in terms of what you said before is that, like, there's this sort of weird, messed up story of redemption, right? Where they bring back Ozymandias, this sort of genius billionaire playboy philanthropist, whatever, right, to murder the new Ozymandias <laughs> to mm-hmm. stop her from achieving godhood, right? Um, and it just so happens in doing so. You know, through the series of intervening events and the battle between these two people, the Ku Klux Klan people are all killed, right? Right. Uh, Once their purpose has been served. And so when you're talking about healing, it's like, yeah, it's really hard. And it also isn't a natural consequence of solving the problem that you're faced with. Like like the immediate problem. I think that's what you were talking about. You're talking about facing the past, right? Um, And the idea that, like, if your problem is that Don Johnson is leading a mind control KKK sect, you know, which also has this senator who wants to be a god to, like, drive all of the black people out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you want to fix that and only that, you're not going to be dealing with the sort of underlying motive events that sort of brought this situation into being, nor are you going to be dealing with the particular uh, feelings and psychological reasons that you might have for personally feeling like you're the one who needs to like put on a mask and exercise justice, right? It's like everybody who has that impetus has something wrong with them, right? <laughs> something that happened to them. And I guess the proposition is that through experiencing nonlinear time and the memories of old Tulsa and her grandfather and her loving relationship with Dr. Manhattan and the love of her kids um, and the sort of friendship of her enemies, the sort of Christ-like turning the other cheek to these people who do so much to her that sister Knight does for much of her life. I think up, up to like, you know, becoming a police officer. Um, it's, uh, it's like, it's like she gets to the point where maybe it will work. Right. Where she's extending that foot out onto the, onto the pool and maybe she'll walk on water. Right. Like is this sort of last shot of the show. Right. It's like, maybe there's a chance. Um, yeah, I guess it's like it, I mean that's how I, that's I guess as I talk through it that's what I think. It's like maybe there's an opportunity to move forward from this, right? If we can take that power and reinvest it in such a way that's mindful of all of the pain that people have been experiencing as well as the cause and effects of the various conflicts and the various things that are at stake. Um I mean, I don't know, Mark. I'm, I'm going on, Mark. What are your thoughts about any of that? Stuff? I mean, what when you just from what you just rolled off there, the thing that stuck out stuck out to me was um, the, the, the parts about family and loving the, those that are, that are closest to you. Right. And like, the, you know, she does that, you know, cares for her family and for her husband without the mask on. Right. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. you know, it's, and it goes back to, you know, what we said before, the mask dehumanizes the mask, um, doesn't allow wounds to heal the mask. It becomes an excuse to perpetuate violence. Um, and if, if the show has a clear condemnation, it's just like, you know, it's this impulse for, um, uh, um, mob justice uh, for revenge in this in this way that um, that the show is condemning, right? right. Although it, although Sister Night is still very important in taking down the Klan, which is framed as very important to do, right? It's like they need to be stopped. Um, yeah, but at the yeah. same time, it's like regrettable that she's been put in this situation in the first place of having to stop them. It would be better. It's like a Katniss Everdeen situation. Like it would right, be better right. if she didn't have to it, exist. It, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's a good way to put it. And, 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 although real life, but not the Hunger Games. Yeah. yeah, the show gives her a lot of agency, even though there's this whole like nonlinear, you know, time as a flat circle business going on. Right. It was all kind of preordained. Um, does, does that kind of take away from any of her agency or how does that factor in? I mean, that's tricky, right? I feel like sometimes people 
And maybe, Matt, this is a place where maybe you could weigh in, too. I feel like in the criticism of narratives these days, I think there might be an overly, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, prescriptive notion of the degree of agency a given character has in a given story in the sense of, like, how much, like, it is important whether she feels like she has agency. It's important whether in the big moments that matter, she acts and demonstrates acting independently in ways that matter. Um, and I think it, ultimately this is a very convoluted plot. And and if at the end of the day it turns out, well, I mean, okay, let me let me step back from it. What Dr. Manhattan even says to her, right? This, this actually is, I'm remembering, this is explicitly talked about in the show. Dr. Manhattan says to her that the reason that he loves her is because even though she knows the predetermined outcome of what's going to happen, she continues to fight, right? And that's like an intrinsic part of her personality. Mm -hmm. um, and so yeah. there's this notion of not surrendering that personal investment in your agency, right? It's like it's not a strictly materialist. Well, this isn't a strictly materialist show because it's heavily invested in subjective experience. So it's not only about who wins. It's about what happens to you along the way um, and what happens to the people, the other people that you're responsible for or care about. Um, yeah. And so like she is, she's, she both doesn't really have a ton of agency because, you know, the events that she's participating in have been foretold. Right. But at the same time, she has a kind of, uh, um, reconciled, you know, reconciled free will without, um, you know, a deterministic free will reconciled situation where it's something in the aspect or dimension of her character and the way that she relates to the world that she seizes that force yeah right for herself even if it doesn't actually change events right um but maybe yeah. it does. there's i mean there's there's a great uh if you ever seen the lion in winter uh mm -hmm. the the play right that when uh in or the film i guess when michael york and and uh anthony hopkins are in are imprisoned, you know, Henry the second has like, uh, you know, locked them up and they're going to be killed. Right. Like they know that that's the, that's their, the, their outcome. And, uh, Anthony Hopkins is like making a stirring speech about how, you know, it's important to face this with equanimity and, and you have to do this. The, the, um, uh, Michael York, who is the, the sort of cynical realist looks at him and says, you fool as if it matters how a man falls down. And Anthony Hopkins f pulls himself up to his full Anthony Hopkins ness and replies, when the fall is all that's left, it matters a great deal. The, uh, you know, the idea that like, I've, I, and I've thought about this before and sort of coming to terms with my own ideas about, about determinism, right? Like it, it, uh, it, it enriches my experience to believe that I can make a difference. And so, uh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do that. I'll go, I'll go that way. And I'm, I'm gonna, uh, stand here and, and keep fighting for this lost cause. I believe that's how Mr. Smith says it when he goes to yeah. Washington. So, Zooming out for a second, right? Like this show, you know, centers very much on personal stories, right? And um, Sister Knight's personal struggle is, uh, you know, what we get invested in. Um, and it all takes place in the broader context of, well, race in America, as, as we just talked about before, right? So, like, ultimately, like the show, it, it, it touches upon these massive you know, extremely important societal themes here, it, but it doesn't really try to be prescriptive really in that way. Right. I mean, I think like the most prescriptive it'll get is like, you know, don't be a racist a-hole in a vast right-wing conspiracy. Don't do that guys. Well, like, I know. mean, I, it's tricky, right? Because there are, it's similar. I mean, it feels similar to the, the dichotomies in Falcon and the winter soldier, right? Where you have the new generation and the old generation and the old generation is, is, has its memories, right? And it's sort of burdened by its memory of all the betrayals that it's faced and everything that it did to deserve, uh, you know, respect and and fair treatment and love and what it received instead, right? And then the new generation has similar sorts of values of self-sacrifice and, and uh, the desire to help other people, but didn't immediately themselves experience all those same betrayals. And so it's a question of like, does the new generation owe it to the old generation to be discouraged? Um, and I think the, that show comes down on the side of we ran out of time. 
uh, to film the show. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have a big speech and it sort of doesn't really do it. But it, it comes out of the side of, yeah, of, like, we're yes, this is a superhero story. We have to believe that it's worth fighting for. I'd say that in Watchmen, the things that Robert – so in the, in Watchmen, the TV show, Robert Redford has been president for 30 years. Uh, it seems to be very undemocratic, right, that he's president for so long. Um, presumably and, – and even they allude to at the end of it that, like, bra- you know, bra- bringing down his regime is probably the right thing to do at this point if it's the thing that's necessary to kind of get everybody back to the truth of what's going on in the world. Um, but – I think the show is still goes to the trouble of showing you like there were reparations and like the community in Tulsa is thriving. And like this is sort of the way that this should kind of be dealt with. Right. Like like Sister Knight should be able to have a family. You know, she should you know, she should be able to join the police force if she wants to. She has that calling. Right. She shouldn't feel excluded from it. But we're kidding ourselves if we think that these kinds of solutions are going to erase the like underlying sense of pain and loss or the kind of continuing enmity that might, and, and interest, right. That might seek to undermine those efforts at any corner. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, not yeah. The end of the, it's not the end of history is I guess what I'm saying. Right. Personal history or history writ large. Um, so I, I mean, I guess, yeah, it basically is like, it, it's not a historically materialistic. Um, it's not a historically materialistic dialectical story where it's like, well, what you really need to do is give all the money to the black people and then they'll be in charge and then like they'll get to write history. Right. And then we'll we'll get to sort of upend society. Right. And it's like, no, 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 no. This is not operating on that level. This is like we have our families and our individual relationships and who has the money is only part of what's going on. Right. There's also like various sorts of other ways power is adjudicated. There's sorts of there's violence, right, and and where the monopoly of violence leads, and there's also just like plotting and and uh, and sort of creative destruction that people can carry out through, uh, you know, nefarious plans because they're villains, right? So it's like people still have the ability to do things, um, right? Like the a lot of the a lot of the project Cy- um, Cyclops people are like not well off, but also a lot of them are, right? So it's tough. Yeah, I guess yeah. I would say that, like, it offers certain sorts of practical endorsements for certain sorts of positive sorts of policies, such as, like, accountability for law enforcement, right? Like, making sure, trying to prevent law enforcement from being infiltrated by organized white supremacist terrorist groups, right? Um, and at the very least, right? And also, like, you know, being careful about, you know, blindly trusting people because they look nice, Right. And there's all sorts of little endorsements. But writ large, I think it's suggesting that like and I think from the from the perspective that matters in this case, which is like not my perspective. Right. Like the African-American perspective. It's like you can't expect just because certain sorts of real world actions might have been taken of an interest that all the pain and and betrayal and loss is just going to go away. Right. Yeah. It's, it is like and to go back to the Vietnam piece of it, it's like, you know, hey, even if through reparations and like working out all this very difficult societal stuff, we, we got American relationships in the good place. Oh, there's like this whole other horde of problems with American imperialism and all the pain and suffering we've caused overseas um, that is also kind of intertwined with all this. Then, and that's still out there. And the show yeah. also doesn't doesn't like, you know, tack, try to tackle. I don't believe right. The um, the whole issue with like Native Americans and uh, and their suffering and. And, um, and and their story. Um, uh-huh. and, I mean, so I you guess don't even want to get into like the whole idea of any of these people living in Oklahoma in the first place, right? Like that's a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah, that you don't want to get yeah. into. That's um, Watchmen season two, perhaps. Yeah, no, they're not going to do that. No, <laughs> they're not, no, not going to do Watchmen season two. I mean, maybe somebody will do it someday, but uh, but yeah, no, it's a uh, the it doesn't go that deep. It's more concerned with like this particular generational story. Right. It's not like, you know, none of you should be here. Yeah, I mean, I bring that up because like, you know, one of the criticisms that was leveled at the show then and um, it is probably still fair now is that like that uh, that the Vietnam aspects of the story um, aren't as well fleshed out. Like, you know, Lady True is uh, uh, some people have I want I'm not necessarily going to take this stance, but, you know, this is like kind of a bit of a Asian stereotype um villain villainous type of character and like you know some of those things curses are fair or some of them aren't but like then you get to the you it, it comes back to what we we're just talking about which like this is a story that's really centered on the black experience in america and you know other, other uh aspects of them are kind of inherently relegated to subplots yeah exactly and it's like it, it is what it is yeah i mean like and and like really the extent of of groundedness in the story is is 
is broad, right? Like, so, <laughs> like the point where again, where Jeremy Irons is catapulting the bod- dead bodies of <laughs> servants into outer space is, uh, it's, which is again a commentary on like the the treatment of you know the proles by the you know the 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 uh, the aristocrats, right, and all that stuff. The idea that like human human bodies themselves are merely a means for him to achieve some sort of personal win that he wants to do, right? Um, but you know, yeah, it's not. It, there's only so many things you can make the story about at any given time, I guess. I mean, you could make it about more, right? But um, you could also make it about. You also might make it about less. I think. I think that this, if there is one, one big question mark I had leaving the show is just how much it kind of has to abandon the sto- the the uh, themes of the source material, including Vietnam, right? Like Vietnam is much more present in the comic book. In terms of like yep. what sort of evil it represents, right? The Vietnam War, um, yep. it is it is overtly expressed and symbol symbolized in many ways that the whole Vietnam War is a cruel joke, right? Um, as is evidenced by the character of the comedian uh, who is front lit with a flamethrower, right, uh, while smoking a cigar as he is as with his little diamond mask on, you know, as he as he fights in the Vietnam War, uh, right, as the only government sanctioned superhero other than. Uh, and, the and, and there's a scene right where he like impregnates a woman and just like you know blows her away with a gun and like you know in an incredibly cruel fashion right oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. That, so that, it's that, like the, the original watchman comic book did a plenty fine job of condemning the vietnam war hmm. um but at the same time it's like this story can't be about states i guess right great powers right it can't be about the soviets and the and the americans right like it's not it's not interested in like you know the whether the Russians are funding right any of these protests against this or that right it's like it's never revealed that the senator is like working for Putin right like it's just it's not operating on that level of like mm-hmm. you know global great power conflict is uh, is not something that matters on the scale of the story that they're telling because ultimately we're talking about subaltern people and as such like the stories as they are framed as quote unquote great powers like by design exclude them. Right, and or minimalize their contribution, right? So it's uh, it's kind of how how that goes, which is you know, but it it's tricky, right? Because it's like you know, the Vietnam War is still a thing that happened. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's uh, the whole proposition is so foreign to the experience of what actually took place that I think it's probably wise not to explore it too much because it's just it's just absurd, right? Well, it sounds. I yeah. mean, it, it, it kind of as we wrap up, it sounds like the show is definitely worth uh, looking into. And I, I, I guess I, I should watch Watchmen. Um, Who's watching the Watchmen? You are I, on HBO Max. This guy. Well, yeah, and and the the other thought I had is that it sounds like you know a really big, uh, you know, it sounds like a really big gamble on a on a show that was sort of complex, multi layered. You know, had a lot to say, not all of it particularly comfortable about the the culture. And I'm I'm sure that HBO will continue this streak of making challenging and and pathbreaking uh works of dramatic art now that they're owned by the producers of of 90 Day Fiance and Here Comes Honey Boo Boo and uh <laughs> you know all your other favorite discovery shows Naked and Afraid <laughs> Look, man, I am I am just as worried, right, about uh, all of the Guy Fieri properties being trivialized by the makers of Boobs of the Dragon or whatever the new show is that they're making. <laughs> like, I don't want to see any. I don't want to be like, oh, today we're cooking dragon meat. Actually, that would be kind of kind of awesome. So never mind if it's like, oh, today today on Guys Grocery Games, you know, it's yeah, all Targaryens all the time, right? In the in the the Guys Grocery Games. Game of Thrones crossover episode, Song of Ice and Fire crossover episode. We're grilling with wildfire. <laughs> yeah. Diners, di- diners, dives, and drive-ins, and Watchmen crossover episode. Oh, oh come on, flush oh, this. Uh, take it home, Pete. Like, where does this go? Diners, oh. drive-ins, and dives, starring Littlefinger, giving you all the best warehouses of King's Landing. Yeah, it's it's called Extreme Makeover Home Edition: The United States of America. It's a. <laughs> It's a real fixer-upper, <laughs> but uh, actually, fixer-upper would be it, right? It would be like Magnolia, fixer-upper. Um, you know, it's uh, 
how much what's it going to take what's yeah, your budget is that's well yeah no i mean the the budget the if you want if you want to get joanna Gaines to to re uh redo your house i'm sure it's uh it's not cheap but you can get the diffusion line at target you know it's like uh <laughs> it's like a little piece of the american dream did we, Mark, did we adequately address the gravity of the historical events that we're trying to talk about? I've I've lived in fear this entire week that we're just not going to do this topic justice because we don't have the right perspectives or we're not um, – we, we don't have enough time or Wait, enough depth of conversation. You've, you've just talked for an hour about how it's impossible to do these topics justice <laughs> as it's – it seems to be kind of like the manifest topic of the, the subject of the you know theme of the show that, it, it, that so, you've been yeah, talking about. In, in acknowledging that we cannot possibly do it justice, we have in a way – in a way, Pete, we have done it justice, the, the most justice that could possibly uh, be done. Well, we we call it we are a Justice League, perhaps <laughs> mm. oh, more man. of a bowling league level league. <laughs> Look, I put my podcasting mask on, and uh, that's 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 to <laughs> to cover the pain, man. Cover the pain. <laughs> oh, I should try podcasting in a mask. All right, let's see. It's a uh... <laughs> you you barely arrived at podcasting. I was born in it. <laughs> you you nearly adopted the medium. Um, that's, uh, that's how I feel. I am podcasting reckoning. <laughs> Another superhero property, by the way, also owned by the Discovery Group. Look, yeah. man, Discovery Plus is the best streaming service out there. Get on there, watch people cook food. It's great. <laughs> it's wonderful. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, uh, hey, you know, what, well, what we need, that's what we need. We need to just really juice up that housing market because, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't I don't say anything about the whole paranormal tag. I haven't watched any of those shows. <laughs> All right. Uh let's leave it there. Thanks very much. I've, I I I really appreciate it and enjoyed this uh this introduction and it has definitely put me into uh uh the frame of mind to to check out the show. So thank you very much uh the two of you for doing that. Thanks to everybody who listened and uh please continue listening next week when we're back with uh more of the show. Till then, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve I mean, this show was really great, but uh, a really noticeable flaw in it was that it did not include Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah on the soundtrack. Let alone All-Star by Smash Mouth. <laughs>